Hear now the word of the Lord from the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 19, verses 28 through 40. God's inspired word to his covenant people. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. And he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you'll find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray together. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that our lives would be living sacrifices unto you, which is our faithful service. We ask that you would teach us to see in this narrative the majesty of your mighty works, so that in this Advent we may cry out, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. For I ask that you would hear our prayer, O Lord. Amen. People of God, this is the first Sunday of Advent. In the fullness of time, God sent His Son, born of a woman, to be in our midst and to redeem us. The church calendar teaches us to see Christ as a baby and ultimately to see Christ as the ascended warrior king. As the kingdom of God, the kingdom of theocracy and truth comes, we will see that our Lord, as St. Ambrose writes, Though by all the world disowned, he will be in heaven enthroned. We celebrate Advent, but Advent season is not unconnected with the rest or the entirety of Messiah's work. As we this morning begin a new year in the calendar of the church, we will be structuring our minds and our hearts around the second person of the Trinity. He is at the center of redemptive history. Our passage this morning is about the Advent. It is not about Christ's first Advent, but it is about another Advent. It is the triumphal entry of Messiah into Jerusalem. But in many ways, our lesson this morning concerning the triumphal entry is the glorious picture 
of Christ's first triumphal entry as he entered into this world born of the Virgin Mary. In fact, there are two connections in this triumphal advent of Christ in our narrative this morning with the advent of Christ into the world as an infant. And we see the very first connection in verse 37, where we see an expectation for the coming of the king. As we have read, the multitudes and the crowds are expecting the king to come. They are rejoicing at his advent as its triumphal entry. And we see also, as we go back to the Gospel of St. Luke in chapter 2, that there was also expectation. The expectation of the shepherds for the arrival of the king. And there was also, as you may remember, the expectation of Herod, who did not rejoice in the advent of Christ, but indeed his expectation was one of fear. And Herod is indeed a picture of all those who do not trust in Messiah. The expectation of the coming of Christ into this world for those who do not believe is an expectation of fear. There is a connection of expectation uniting these two events. The second connection is found in verse 38 where the people cry out, Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. You may remember very well where we have first heard this expression. We heard it in Luke chapter 2 verse 14. When the people responded, the angels in particular, peace on earth with whom he is well pleased. Now, I want you to see this connection because it is a strong statement of the effectiveness of the kingdom of Messiah. For we see in the birth of Christ in Luke chapter two, that the angels are crying out peace on earth. But in this triumphal entry in Luke 19, the people are crying out Peace in heaven. You see, it appears that they are now beginning to see that the kingdom of Christ has a heavenly origin. In other words, this king coming into Jerusalem brings a peace to earth that is grounded in the authority and the peace of heaven. And so you see heaven and earth coming together in the work of the kingdom of Messiah. And these disciples, all of them have seen throughout history, they have seen earthly rulers equating peace with the power of the sword. But this king, he comes in the name of the Lord without a sword. Now make no mistake this morning, brothers and sisters, the peace that Christ brings also brings a sword. But it is not a physical sword. It is a sword that causes division within families, within societies, tribes, and civilization. There is no contradiction in these two statements. Christ brings His peace unto earth. But not everyone desires His peace. And so naturally and consequently, families are divided because the peace of Christ is not greeted with rejoicing and exaltation. And so it is that the implication of the advent is that Christ is not coming to operate like other earthly rulers. His kingdom has a different agenda. Christ's kingdom does not use the methodologies of the earthly kingdoms. And how do we know this? 
We know this because Messiah comes riding a colt that has never been sat on. Jesus, in our narrative, sends his disciples to get him a colt. And you remember that he says, if anyone asks, why are you untying this colt? They are to answer, because the Lord has need of it. Now, what is happening here? What is the significance of this? Why is this text so important to us this morning? You see what Jesus is setting up before us here in this narrative is that he is setting up a scenario that is very familiar to any well-informed Jew. You may wonder why Jesus doesn't simply walk the rest of the way to Jerusalem. After all, he's only approximately two miles from his destination. But you see what Jesus is doing here in this passage? He is setting up a specific scene so that when people see it, they will recognize it. They will recognize precisely what he is saying. This scene this morning introduces to us a donkey. Modern Americans will certainly not associate a donkey with a royal transportation. And though we, in this day and age, we don't think much of donkeys and mules, indeed, they were royal transportations in ancient Israel. In fact, you may remember from the pages of the Old Covenant that Solomon was taken to his coronation on a mule that had belonged to his father David. And David's sons all rode on mules. You see, kings who ride donkeys and mules are clearly not warmongers. And that is why we know that Messiah came with peace. They are not warmongers, but make no mistake, they are kings nonetheless. And Jesus is always drawing our attention to the Old Covenant. And He knew that Zechariah had prophesied of a king coming to Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus, now in our passage in the Gospel of St. Luke 19, He is ready to be recognized as the promised Messiah that Zechariah prophesied. And so our Lord Jesus Christ, the great exalted King, comes riding an animal. That is not equipped for warfare. He carries no sword. He does not come bearing a sword, but he comes in humility. And Jesus is now coming back to his royal city. He is coming back to take over what rightly belongs to him. And we know the story. The king who comes in humility and peace is going to establish his kingship by being betrayed, by being oppressed, by facing injustice, by being condemned as an innocent man, and by being put to death in the most violent of ways. And in verses 35 and 36 in our passage, we see another kingly imagery, a very unique imagery for the readers of those days. The disciples in our passage, they throw their garments, their cloaks, on the cold for Jesus to sit on. And then they spread their garments on the road. What is this for? What does this mean? Are the disciples trying to make Jesus comfortable in the last two miles of his ride? Are they providing, so to speak, a road of garments as he enters the city? Brothers and sisters, there's something far deeper going on. For you see, garments in the Old Covenant represent people. When Jesus sits on the garments... And when Jesus rides over the garments, 
the people are essentially saying that the Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned on them. Precisely what is happening is that Jesus is reenacting the Jehu narrative when Jehu was anointed as king and destroyed the temple of Baal. And we see this in 2 Kings chapter 9 when we read that Jehu was anointed king. And in 2 Kings 9, the text tells us that when he was anointed king, the people in haste took their garments and put it under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. You see what is happening. Jesus arranged his entrance into the city in this manner because he was symbolically claiming and declaring to the world his kingship. Jesus is the greater Jehu who rode over his followers' garments into Samaria to destroy the temple of Baal. This is precisely what is taking place. The people are now admitting and claiming and declaring that Messiah is enthroned on them and that they are submitting, they are placing their lives and their beings and all that they are under the authority and rule of Messiah. And in verses 37 and 38, we see now the response of the disciples. They now see his mission as the great king coming to completion. And what do they do? They rejoice over the works of Christ, in particular, his miracles. You see, the gospel here is echoing Psalm 24 in this passage. You may remember the words of the psalmist when he calls us to lift up our heads and to rejoice those who are waiting at the gates for justice is coming, for deliverance is coming, liberation is coming. The crowd is waiting for justice at the entrance of the holy city. They are waiting for this messianic king to come and to bring peace. After all, if Christ raised Lazarus from the dead, then he is also able to raise this Jewish nation into greatness. And how do the Pharisees respond in light of this scenario? And we see this in verse 39, that the Pharisees and the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And in the words of Matthew Henry, who writes, Christ's triumph and his disciples' joyful praises of them are the vexation of proud Pharisees that are enemies to Messiah and his kingdom. It is only in the Gospel of Luke that we see reported this response of the Pharisees in anger. What is happening here in our passage is that Jesus is now sharing his honor with God and the Pharisees despise it. And Jesus responds in verse verse 40 with that powerful and that memorable response. If these people were silent, the very stones would cry out. And some have viewed this statement to say that even if the humans will not praise God, the stones will do so. And there is a sense in which this idea is true. You may remember that when our Lord Jesus died, the Gospels tell us that the earth shook and the rocks were split 
as if they uttered the praises of Christ, the completion of His work. The stones were witnesses of the sacrifice of Christ. But in this passage, it appears that Luke is drawing an allusion to another book in the Old Covenant, to Habakkuk chapter 2. And it is there in Habakkuk that God tells Habakkuk that he will destroy Israel at the hands of the Babylonians. That God will use a wicked nation to bring about justice against his chosen people who have committed far greater idolatry. And so we read in Habakkuk chapter 2, For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. You see this illusion? The stones here refer to the stones of the temple. The stones of the temple. The temple that represented God's presence. The temple that signified and symbolized all the religious exercises and performances of the day. The temple that represented the very presence of God. What Christ is saying is that if the people do not rejoice, the witness of the temple itself will be against them. Jesus in Luke alludes to this passage in Habakkuk. The prayer of Habakkuk is beginning to be answered. If my peoples are silenced, then the very stones of the earth will bring witness against them. Their very house will oppose them. The stones will cry out in judgment. And you may remember historically that indeed they do. The stones cry out in A.D. 70 when the Roman army surround the holy city and they bring God's judgment and His fury and His wrath upon apostate Israel. And you may ask this morning the question, but what about the peace that Messiah brings? What is so peaceful about judgment? Brothers and sisters, the peace of Christ comes to those with whom He is well pleased. Those who reject the message of the kingdom will find no peace and they will leave this world without peace. But those who embrace the message of Messiah can truly say, Blessed is the advent of the Lord, the King who comes in the name of our Lord. And so this passage calls us this morning to consider the implications thereof. How are we to live? It seems clear that there are at least two applications in this passage this morning. And the first application for you to understand and to notice and to apply this morning and to analyze carefully in this narrative is the undying and the commitment the willingness of the disciples to follow the commands of Jesus. The disciples in our passage, they are symbolizing their submission by spreading their garments on the ground. They are placing themselves, so to speak, under the authority of Messiah. They go about the Lord's business, even if the message of the Lord seems extremely unusual. And when someone asks, why are you doing this? The answer is, because the Lord needs me to do this. 
because it is beneficial for the kingdom, because it exalts my master, because it is what the Lord requires of me. Our pastor this morning calls us to be faithful disciples of Christ in this world according to His commands. What we do for Christ seems utterly contrary to the world's expectations, doesn't it? It is easier, it is always easier to walk by sight than by faith. But Christ tells us the opposite. It is always easier to give our children over to be educated in the curriculum of the humanists. But the Bible says that every thought and every thought of our children must be captive to Christ. It is easy for young people to succumb to the immoral behavior of our youth today. But young men and young women have and need to follow hard after Christ for the way of Christ is the way of purity. And so the way of Christ seems hard and at times it seems unconventional, but it is always the best way. And we are to follow the example of the disciples and their willingness to serve their Lord. And finally, we see that whereas the Pharisees lead by intimidation and by manipulation and by arrogance, Christ leads in humility and gentleness. We have to learn this morning that the way to have influence is not through boasting and bragging, but it is by worshiping God, by confessing our sins, by denying our desires, and by serving the body of Christ happily. Christ Himself came to be for us, His people, a servant and a king. His way was the way of the cross. And so we as a body, we need this morning to be aware of those in our midst that are in need. If you are a part of the community faithfully, you will know the needs of one another. You will know their needs and consequently, you will know how to help one another. This morning I ask you, how much service have you offered to your brothers and sisters in this congregation? How can you serve your brothers and sisters? Have you asked this question? How can you live as Christ expects us to live this morning if we are to lead, if we are to live as Christ desires? We live by service. And the, and the example that Christ provides for us this morning, people of God, is indeed an infallible model for service. And the message of Advent and this very first Sunday for us this morning is that our Lord Jesus Christ comes in peace. He comes riding on a colt. A colt that is not ridden by earthly rulers who come to war and to destroy. The Savior comes to serve. And He entered this world and expects nothing more than joyful praise from His people. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.
And so it is for us this morning that the table of our Lord is set before us in the presence of our enemies. And this table is for those who indeed have thrown their garments, who have thrown themselves under the rulership and authority of the King of glory, so he may ride over us. And when he rides over us, he does not ride over us with harshness, but he rides over us with gentleness. And he treats us as his own children. Those who come to this table this morning come because they have embraced the peace that the King brings. We this morning have embraced fully the incarnation of Messiah. And so here at this table then, we celebrate and we experience the conclusion and the goal of the incarnation. That the Son came for us this morning to give abundant life to the people of God. The Lord Jesus came as the bread from heaven so that those who eat his flesh and drink his blood may have eternal life. So people of God, you who have eternal life, come and be fed at the table of our Lord Jesus.